Today's episode of Eco Chic is brought to you by our very own TotallyEcoChic.com. TotallyEcoChic.com is the online shop brought to you by this very pod. If you're just starting your sustainability journey or want to update your current supplies with some cute reusable items, this is a place to go. I want to tell you specifically about our canvas produce bags. Grocery shopping is the only thing most of us are doing lately, and maybe you're starting to think more about your plastic consumption. If you're bringing your own bag to the grocery store, it's helpful to follow through and skip the disposable plastic produce bags too. Canvas produce bags are ideal if you're picking up produce items that are already laid out open air, like tomatoes or green beans or sometimes mushrooms, or if you're starting to think about shopping package-free, they're great for bulk bin items like rice and oats. Our canvas produce bags come in a set of three, they're lightweight, they're machine washable, and they're the perfect starter item for your eco-conscious lifestyle. TotallyEcoChic.com also has a few more fun things like silicone storage bags to replace your Ziplocs and some fun environmentally-minded postcards to send your friends while we're all separated. Plus, the code ECOCHIC, all one word, always gets podcast listeners 10% off. Everything you do is making an impact in this world. This is not an elitist issue. This is a quality of life issue. How dare you? And I feel like it's my responsibility as a human being. So what? The world is at stake. You're listening to Eco Chic, a podcast about climate, sustainability, and eco-conscious lifestyles. What, like it's hard? Hello, hello, hello. My name is Laura Diaz. Welcome back to Eco Chic. I'm very happy to have you here today. You are in for a treat today. I got to be honest, a treat and a half. It is such a good one. As you may have seen from the episode title, today's guest is Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. Dr. Catherine Hayhoe is widely regarded as one of the world's most influential communicators on the reality of climate change. Dr. Catherine Hayhoe is an atmospheric scientist. Her research focuses on developing and applying high-resolution climate projections for understanding what climate change means for people and the natural environment. She is a professor and the director of the Climate Science Center at Texas Tech University. She has her bachelor's in physics from the University of Toronto and an MS and PhD in atmospheric science from the University of Illinois. Dr. Hayhoe has served as a lead author for the second third, and fourth U.S. National Climate Assessment. Her work has resulted in over 125 peer review publications that evaluate the performance of our global climate model, develop solutions for tackling the climate crisis, and quantify the impacts of climate change over cities, states, ecosystems, different sectors of our economy over the coming century. Dr. Hayhoe has been named one of Fortune's world's 50 greatest leaders. In 2018, she was awarded the 8th Stephen H. Schneider Award for Outstanding Climate Science Communication. In 2019, she was named on foreign policies list of 100 global thinkers for the second time and also made a politicals list of 100 most influential people in climate policy, plus Elle magazine's list of 27 women leading the charge. Last year, Catherine Hayhoe was named one of the United Nations Champions of the Earth, the UN's highest environmental honor. Of course, this is a teeny tiny snippet of all of the honors and awards that she has received, but I hope you get the picture. She is an incredible, incredible force in the climate conversation. I am so proud of this episode, and honestly, I was a little bit starstruck. I have looked up to Dr. Catherine Hayhoe for years, 
especially while I was in graduate school, she was the golden example in my mind of the kind of climate scientist I want to be, the scientist that you can understand and really resonate with. I was also very, very impacted by a TED Talk she gave in 2018 titled, The Most Important Thing You Can Do to Fight Climate Change, Talk About It. It has over 3 million views, and I'll link it in the show notes if you'd like to watch it. It was unreal for me to be referring to her in this conversation as Catherine. I am so thankful for this opportunity. It was very full circle, a very dream come true type milestone for me and for this podcast. I know that you'll enjoy this conversation with Dr. Hayhoe because she is so eloquent and thoughtful and truly brilliant. We cover a lot of ground. She gives a good basis of understanding why we should care about climate change today. We talk about climate solutions. We talk about the influence of the oil and gas industry and where we're going looking forward. She also shared a ton of resources, which I will share a little Cliff's Notes type version post rounding those all up on Instagram. Also, as a side note, we did not really touch too deeply on the conversation of faith and climate science, which is an intersection that Dr. Hayhoe speaks on quite often. She is a great, great example of how to talk about faith and religious beliefs in the context of the climate conversation. So if you're interested in looking up any of those conversations, I highly recommend you do. If you enjoyed this episode, send it to a friend, share it with your class, share it in your group chat. You can also rate and review this show if you have a minute. It helps us continue to show up for new listeners, and we keep bringing on super incredible guests like Dr. Hayhoe. If you're interested in getting in touch, my socials are in the show notes. They're Eco Chic Podcast on Instagram and on Facebook, and I'm now on Twitter. It's just my name, at Laura E. Diaz, and I'll have that in the show notes, too, if you are inclined. I didn't think I was missing out too, too much on Twitter, but I kind of felt like I should have one. And then Catherine Hayhoe told me I should get on Twitter. So for that reason, I'm now on Twitter. My email is also always down below if you are so inclined to email me. All right, with that, let's get into it. Please enjoy this conversation all about climate change today, solutions, and how we can tackle the climate crisis moving forward with Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. So Catherine, let's just jump right into setting the scene for everyone about climate change and why it is a threat multiplier, why we should be so concerned with climate change right now. So ever since the dawn of the industrial era, we have been digging up increasing amounts of coal and then later oil and natural gas and burning them to power our society. And don't get me wrong, though they have brought us tremendous benefits. I mean, just think back 300 years ago. Our average lifespan was 40 years instead of 80 years. A woman's work was never done. Doing laundry was an endless full day of drudgery back in the days when people only owned, you know, two or three outfits. And not only that, but far more seriously, industrialization actually was a major factor in enabling the abolition of slavery. So the Industrial Revolution overall increased the length of our life, the quality of our life, our well-being, but it did so at the cost of our climate. And we know now that digging up and burning fossil fuels is responsible for 75% of this extra blanket of heat-trapping gases that we've been wrapping around our planet. 25% of that comes from deforestation and agriculture. So just like you would if you were asleep at night and someone snuck into your room and put an extra blanket over you, you'd wake up sweating and you'd say, who put this extra blanket on me? I'm too hot. In the same way, our planet is now running a fever because of this extra blanket that we've been wrapping around it year after year and decade after decade. 
So why does that matter? It matters because just like a fever affects our entire body, the temperature of the planet affects everything on the planet, including us. In fact, our society and our civilization is one of the most vulnerable to a changing climate pretty much after the polar bear. It's because our entire civilization going back thousands of years is built on the foundation of a stable climate. This is what we've used to allocate our water resources to figure out how and where to grow our crops, built it into our building standards. We've designed our infrastructure, our society, our public health systems, our cities, our transportation. Everything is designed around and predicated on the assumption of a stable climate that we can have cold and hot and wet and dry. That's just variability. But long term, sea level will remain the same. The places where you can grow certain crops will remain the same. The average amount of water available will remain the same. But today, climate is changing faster than any time in the history of human civilization on this planet. And that's why it matters to us. That was so succinct. Thank you so much for really laying it all out there. I have to bring this conversation around to the topic of the acceptance of climate change because there is inevitably going to be people that say this blanket isn't real. We are going through cycles professionally and in my personal life. It's hard to lead the argument, quote unquote, not that it should be an argument, but the argument that Climate change is something that's happening whether or not people are willing to accept it and change their views on it. So I think that you are an excellent example of someone who really knows how to talk about climate change in a way that is relatable to everyone and really explain why it matters to different groups of people. So I'd love to talk to you about values and leading with values when we're starting this climate conversation. Well, let's back up just a second and talk about why people do object to the science. And believe me, I hear from them every day. I hear from them on Twitter, on Facebook, not so much on Instagram. People are mostly just there to hit the heart button. Um, I get handwritten letters. I get angry phone calls and emails. And I have these conversations in person as well when I, when I talk to people. So where does this come from? Do they truly have a problem with fundamental basic science that we have understood since the 1800s? No, they don't. Because if they really had a problem with that science, it's the exact same science that explains how our stoves work and how our fridges work and how airplanes fly. And you don't see a lot of people saying climate isn't changing, it's just a natural cycle, refrigerators are a hoax, and airplanes are a conspiracy theory. Now, of course, on the internet, you can find people who say anything, but most people won't say that. So why do so many people say it's just a natural cycle, or you scientists are just making it up to lie in your pockets, or, oh, even if it is happening, it's good. I mean, isn't warmer weather better? It's not because of the science. It is because of the perceived, emphasis on perceived, the perceived solutions we have been told, and in fact, we are regularly told that fixing climate change would require government control, taking away your trucks, your, your choices, your liberties, shutting down the economy, letting China or the United Nations or even the Antichrist control the world. We are told that the solutions to climate change are negative and punitive and harmful and will leave us worse off than we are today. And if we're told that by people that who we believe, then our human response, our defense mechanism is we have to, and this happens really mostly subconsciously, we have to think of reasons why it can't be right because if it really is a real issue and we don't want to fix it, that makes us a bad person. 
And especially if it's an issue that disproportionately affects the poorest and most vulnerable people in the world and we don't want to fix it, that makes us a selfish and a greedy person. And the vast majority of us are not okay with that. We want to be a good person. We don't want to be selfish. We don't want to be greedy. We want to think of others. And so because of that, subconsciously, we have to reject the reality of the problem. Because if we reject the reality of the problem, we can be a smart, shrewd, good person. We're not being, you know, deceived by those those socialists or scientists or tree huggers who are trying to convince us that the planet's going to hell in a handbasket. But if we say it is real, but we don't want to fix it, that would make us the bad person. And so when we talk about climate change, the most important issue to address then is not people's understanding of the science. It's people's understanding of the solutions, because the truth is, is that there are positive beneficial solutions that will improve our quality of life, that will help the poorest and most vulnerable people in the world, that would grow the economy, that will provide more jobs than fossil fuels, that will actually end up saving us money. But we never hear about these solutions. Why? Well, a big part of it is because There are just a few losers when it comes to climate solutions, but those few losers happen to be the richest corporations in the world. 90 companies are responsible for two-thirds of our heat-trapping gas emissions, two-thirds of that blanket that we're wrapping around the planet, since the dawn of the industrial era. And so they have every reason to try to keep us addicted to fossil fuels as long as possible because every new quarterly return they get with their profits going up is a bonus for their company. Wow. Wow. I have heard that stat of 90 companies being responsible for the vast, vast majority of our warming. But there's something about putting it into the context of losers in the climate solutions space. It hits different. It's the conversation around the vast majority of people being able to benefit from climate solutions. And I really like that you're able to discuss it in the context of values and helping the most vulnerable populations. There was a TED talk you gave that really resonated with me a few years ago where you discussed rational hope and the idea that there is solutions that are attainable, that they're viable, that they're economically feasible at this point. So I'd love to talk with you a little bit about climate solutions and some of the actions or some of the solutions that you believe to be the most valuable in our climate crusade. Absolutely. Well, first, if we just kind of present the big picture, it's this. If the U.S. were to do everything that it had to do to meet its Paris Agreement targets, and the Paris Agreement is where every country in the world got together five years ago and agreed to do their part to help limit this warming to a maximum of two degrees Celsius, which is about three and a half degrees Fahrenheit, or one and a half degrees if they could. So if the U.S. did its part to meet uh, its Paris Agreement targets... It would initially obviously cost money because we're trying to accelerate a clean energy revolution faster than it would happen naturally. It is already happening, but we try to make it happen faster. But in terms of the avoided impacts of climate change only on the United States, not even factoring in kind of the cascading impacts of what happens other places that affects us, just in the United States we would start to break even anywhere from five to at the very most probably 15 years. So just think of the way that we make financial decisions. I mean, we set aside money for retirement now, which means we're losing that money now, but we know that we're going to gain it back much longer, much further away than five to 15 years for most of us, right? So this is a time scale over which we're used to making smart decisions. And so just from that alone, we recognize that 
it makes all the financial sense in the world. But that doesn't even take into account the fact that we already have more jobs, for example, in the solar energy industry than we do in fossil fuel powered electricity across the whole country. All up the middle of the country, wind energy is already cheaper than coal or natural gas. And solar is cheaper over in Arizona and California. And this is despite the fact that fossil fuels are far more subsidized than renewables. People often say, oh, those renewables, we only use them because they're subsidized. They are subsidized, but the direct subsidies for fossil fuels in the United States are double the direct subsidies for renewables. And when you include the indirect subsidies on fossil fuels, which include the impact of burning fossil fuels in our health, air pollution from fossil fuels kills 200,000 people in the United States every year which is a stunning number considering um, the coronavirus pandemic that we're looking at today. So when you include the indirect effects, the subsidies on fossil fuels in the U.S. exceed $600 billion per year, which is more than the Pentagon's budget. So this is kind of the big picture of climate solutions here. So then people say, well, you know, what type of solutions are you actually talking about? There's no one silver bullet. There's no one thing that would fix everything. But there's a lot of what they call, you know, silver buckshot. So this solution would be great here. That solution would be great over here. This solution would accomplish this. And there's a fantastic resource called Project Drawdown. You can find it online at drawdown.org where they go through and they list the energy-related solutions, the efficiency solutions, the farming solutions, because there's a lot of great solutions to do with taking carbon out of the atmosphere and putting it back in the soil where we want it because it's a fertilizer. There's changes in behavioral solutions. One of my personal uh, favorite TED Talks is by Catherine Wilkinson, who works for Project Drawdown, and she did a TED Talk on how women and girls are disproportionately affected by climate change, but women and girls can also be a huge part of the solution to climate change. So there's everything from individual choices like plant-based diets and how we commute to work to system-wide changes in how we power our electrical systems, how we design our transportation systems, how we power our industry. And there's even policy-wide solutions, like, for example, the idea of putting a price on carbon. Now, this is actually supported by almost every economist in the world, including the two who won the Nobel Prize for Economics two years ago for their work on carbon pricing, because it's a free market solution. You're not telling people, oh, you're not allowed to drive a Hummer. You say, absolutely, if you want to drive a Hummer, you can, but you have to pay the true price for it because you driving a Hummer is actually affecting other people and you have to actually pay the real cost. So it's interesting because... I'm, you know, as a scientist, I'm in favor of any policy that works and doesn't hurt people. But the idea of carbon pricing actually has conservative support in the United States. There's a bipartisan climate solutions caucus in the House and in the Senate where you're only allowed to join if you join with a member from the other party. So it's 50-50 Democrat and Republican. And there's something called the Climate Leadership Council that was founded by organizations like AT&T and Ford and ExxonMobil if you can believe it. Yes, really. And they, they're calling for a price on carbon, um, which if you collect the dividends from that price on carbon and refund it to middle and low-income households, would give a check of about $2,000 to the average household every year. So there's lots of different solutions at every level from national policy to technological solutions to behavioral solutions to individual solutions. And when people say, well, what's the best solution? My answer is we need to do pretty much everything.
Wow. I had no idea about that bipartisan council. That's so interesting. Mm -hmm. And I'm on a personal level, I'm a huge fan of Drawdown. I talk about it a lot here on the show because I think it's such a good collection of an overall understanding of the climate solutions that we have ready to go. And I, I love the concept of girls and women being such a positive solution, quote unquote, really, in the Drawdown climate conversation. I also think that it's important to know how you are able to discuss solutions at so many different levels, policy solutions, individual habits, behavioral changes. And I think behavioral changes when it comes to climate solutions get a little bit of a bad rap. I'm personally a big advocate for behavioral changes because I feel like if you're someone who is concerned about your environmental footprint, you're inherently more inclined to vote for someone who is going to advocate for those policy changes that support that. So I'd love to hear a little bit also about policy changes in your in your eyes, because I love the concept of a really bipartisan, unified effort when it comes to the climate conversation. And where you feel as though we really need to go on the solutions aspect, is carbon pricing really the you know silver buckshot in that in that arena? Well, a policy like carbon pricing would set the stage for a lot of other solutions to be implemented more effectively. So for example, putting a price on carbon means that fossil fuel-based energy would cost more and clean energy would cost less. So that would make clean energy much more affordable for many people and it would also spur further development, which in turn grows the economy and grows new jobs. What we would also see is a price on carbon would help farmers. So it turns out that farming is a huge way to, of course, not only produce our food, but it's a huge way to be good stewards of the soil and of our resources. So there's all kinds of agricultural techniques that Project Drawdown talks about, some of them dating back centuries. We've known about them forever. And some of them, you know, new modern technology, where the way that we farm can actually increase the health of our soil. It can increase the production of our crops, and it does so by putting carbon back in the soil. So if farmers were doing that, not only would they themselves reap the benefits of that, and there's this fantastic series of short movies out called Carbon Cowboys. What they do is they go around, they talk to farmers all across the US, Canada, and even one over in the UK who are doing this carbon farming. And in their own voices, the farmers, many of whom have been living on the land for generations, they tell us what this does for the health of their soil and their land. So Carbon Cowboys gets into this and I just love the farmers that they interview. They're just so, so authentic. But if there was a price on carbon, then farmers could benefit even more because if they actually were able to track how much carbon they were putting back in their soil, they could actually get paid for that. So there's a lot of different things that a price on carbon would affect. Everything from the cost of our food, if food was coming from the other side of the world and it was transported here using carbon-based fuels, it would cost more than if it were local. Growing meat, for example, growing uh, beef in either in the Amazon and then bringing it to North America or growing it in factory farming here produces a lot of heat trapping gases. So beef from that would be much more expensive, whereas sustainably managed and grazed beef, which produces a lot lower emissions, would be much more affordable, whereas now it's like two or three times the normal price. So a price on carbon would sort of balance everything out and help us personally those of us who don't have a lot of expendable income, it would help most of us personally to make decisions with our money to be better stewards, which we might not be able to afford to do right now. 
Got it. I really like the idea of really setting the scene for additional policy solutions after we're able to put a price on carbon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because there's, there's, again, there's no one silver bullet. And now I know that there's probably people listening who are saying, but Catherine, have you not read those articles that I've read? And yes, I actually have read those articles that say, you know, the number one thing we can do is a plant-based diet, or the number one thing we can do is stop flying, or the number one thing we can do is not have children. Well, first of all, if nobody had children, that actually probably would take care of the problem because there'd be no humans left. (laughs) But aside from that, it's not a case actually of how many people we have. The 10% richest people in the world produce 50% of emissions. It's how we live that matters. But not just individually, it's how we as a society live because industry is a huge part of this. And as we talked about, 90 companies are responsible for two thirds of our heat trapping gas emissions since the beginning of the industrial era. So something that did not shock me, but it did surprise me that I just learned recently is, for example, the concept of a personal carbon footprint where we step on the carbon scales and we enter, you know, where we live and how much we travel and what we eat and things like that. And it tells us where our carbon emissions come from. And then a good carbon footprint calculator will give us suggestions of how we can reduce our carbon footprint. And I have definitely done this myself. I recommend that everybody do it. I work through it with all of my students every year. And it it often surprises us because, for example, for me, the biggest part of my carbon footprint when I first did this almost 10 years ago was, was my flying, but not vacation flying, flying to scientific meetings and to give talks about climate change. So that's why I've transitioned about 80% of the talks I give to virtual talks. And I only travel now when I group together a huge number of talks in one place, such that the individual footprint of each event is about the same as if I got in my little plug-in hybrid car here where I live and drove maybe an hour away to give the talk. So the concept of a carbon footprint was originally created by a sustainability expert and a planning expert. And so they did it obviously for reasons to, you know, to show us how our choices affect our footprint. But what I didn't know, and this is the part that shocked me but did not surprise me, is the reason why the concept of a carbon footprint is so widespread is because it was popularized by a massively funded PR campaign by one of those 90 companies. In fact, one of the top 10 richest companies in the world, British Petroleum or BP, back in 2005. They popularized the idea of a personal carbon footprint because if we are busy staring at ourselves and pointing bony fingers of judgment at other individuals, we're not looking at them. And this continues. I mean, just last year, the CEO of Royal Dutch Shell, which is another one of those 90 companies and another one of the 10 richest companies in the world, he was giving a talk to um, a bunch of CEOs in London and they asked him, or he was talking about climate change. He said, you know, it's all those people who eat fruit like strawberries out of season and those people who buy fast fashion. And so what was he doing? He was pointing to actions that we are often very conscious of in our personal lives. And it's true that those actions are things that we could do better, but he was doing so to deflect responsibility off the elephant in the room. That is such a good, good thing to bring to light because I have heard that the carbon footprint was popularized by BP and I was very surprised to hear that the first time I heard it, but it makes a lot of sense. It's about deflecting the attention away from the industry that is very likely the largest contributor to this issue that we have. And I also think it's really 
interesting when we talk about fossil fuel companies, when we talk about gasoline, that these are also individual companies that we're well aware of the effects of the industry. We're all somewhat familiar with the idea that the gasoline companies knew that climate change was happening in the 70s, and it hasn't really been given the attention that it's needed in recent years. It hasn't really been brought to light until An Inconvenient Truth by Al Gore. So I would love to kind of talk a little bit about how you see this external industry, this fossil fuel industry and the gasoline industry moving towards other solutions if the economy is changing if we know that renewable energy is more and more affordable how is the villain in this story really adapting well you're absolutely right i mean um, these big oil and gas companies have huge research and development arms with some of the smartest people in the world working for them and they were very aware that they were the ones who were primarily responsible like we said two-thirds of emissions from 90 companies they were primarily responsible for this issue And it isn't like the politicians haven't known it. Scientists first warned a president, Lyndon B. Johnson, almost 55 years ago about the dangers of a changing climate. So there's a fantastic movie and book called Merchants of Doubt. It is outstanding. It talks about how doubt regarding the health impacts of smoking was deliberately manufactured to keep us smoking and to protect the the cigarette companies as long as possible. And then it talks about how some of these very same people transitioned to the fossil fuel industry to sow doubt on climate science after um, the big tobacco companies lost all of their lawsuits. So Merchants of Doubt is a documentary and it's also a book. And Naomi Oreskes is one of the authors of the book. And she has continued with a, a project specifically looking at Exxon called Exxon Knows where they have documented through open records and emails just how long they knew about this and how they made a very conscious choice that rather than deciding we are an energy company and we are going to start to transition to produce new forms of energy that don't produce carbon, rather than making that decision, Exxon decided that it was cheaper and it was cheaper short term for sure, to invest all of their money in sowing doubt on climate change to keep us dependent on fossil fuels as long as possible. Now, other companies are trying to take a bit of a different approach. In the past, BP obviously has tried to deflect their responsibility onto individuals, and they've certainly done their share of supporting people and think tanks to say this isn't a big deal. But today, BP is trying, at least they say that they're trying, to reduce their emissions, and they want to actually be the first carbon neutral energy company by 2050. Um, How are they going to do that? Well, they're going to have to transition basically their entire bottom line because they won't be able to make money from digging up and processing fossil fuels anymore. So will they be able to do it? I hope they will be. Are they sincere in their announcement? I hope they're sincere. But there's really a very broad range in these oil and gas companies from ones who've decided we're going to keep on going until we have pulled the last barrel of oil from the ground that anyone will buy. And we're going to do whatever it takes to keep our quarterly returns up while we do so at one end of the spectrum. To the other end of the spectrum where you do have companies saying, you know what, we want to be an energy company, not an oil and gas company. So how can we start looking at transitioning what we do to maintain our future? Wow, wow, wow. I think a lot about energy companies and the way that our economy is transitioning and how, yes, historically, we've really needed these big, bad, quote unquote, companies to really push our economy to where it is now. 
But it's interesting to think that this is a point in time where they need to pivot if they're going to keep up and if they're really going to meet the demands. If people are waking up and these misinformation campaigns aren't really proving as fruitful as they have in the past, it's it's really interesting to think that everyone has to be aware and keeping up with the brands and the corporations and the organizations that are really pushing our climate conversation in the right direction. So I think that's a really, really good point to give people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Catherine, before I let you go, I'm really interested to hear maybe a closing note, one thing that you would recommend for the audience to do today, whether it's a behavioral change or a resource that you'd recommend they get educated with, one great climate tip for the audience. Yes. So having these conversations with people about climate change isn't about hitting them over the head with the science. It's about connecting over shared values and talking about solutions that they can get on board with. So I think one of the best resources is the one that you've already talked about before, which is Project Drawdown, because it gives us lots of great ideas of really positive things that when people hear about it, they might be surprised. They may say, well, sure, I'm okay with that. In fact, that sounds like a great idea. Why aren't we doing that? So in my TED talk, I lay out how to have these conversations. I give a couple of, I give a template and a couple of examples of how we can connect with people over everything from the fact that we're, you know, might be members of the Rotary Club, we might both be parents, we might live in the same location, we might enjoy, you know, skiing or knitting or cooking, or we might be of the same faith. So connecting over something we share, but then explaining why climate change matters to us today in the places where we live, affecting things we already care about, and what is a sensible solution that we can invest in and support and say, yes, that actually makes sense. I think that's a, that's a great idea. In fact, I'm willing to implement it in my own life or I'm willing to advocate with my organization or my business or my school or my church to do this, or I'm willing to contact my local official at the city level, the state level, or at the federal level and say, hey, I support the solution. Why don't you support it too? It just makes sense. Using our voice to talk about climate change and to advocate for change at every level is the single most important thing that any of us can do. I hope you thoroughly enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. Again, it was a total dream for me. If you're interested in hearing more about the internal operations of BP, I will link below an episode with Christine Bader, a a former analyst at BP and the former director of social responsibility at Amazon. I will also link below an episode with Claudia LaRue, the first secretary to the United Nations mission to the Dominican Republic. If you're interested in learning more about these holistic solutions we alluded to, how we're thinking about climate in tandem with issues like hunger and poverty and women's education. That's all I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining me. It has been a really good day. I look forward to seeing you guys very soon. 